Every year, 400 billion square meters of new fabric are made. That's a number I have trouble picturing. 80% of garment workers are women, and they earn some of the lowest wages in the world. Point two, Oxfam says that from growing cotton to the dyeing process, it takes around 20,000 liters of water, or over 5,000 gallons, to make a single pair of jeans and one t-shirt. Point three, Britons throw away an estimated 67 million items of clothing during lockdown last year. I could go on, but most of us understand the problem here. We've gone from a time when cloth was expensive and difficult to produce and every scrap was precious, to now when the stuff is coming out of our ears, produced cheaply and discarded at will. We're the victims of our own technological success and so is the planet. It's hard for us as individuals to know what we can do about this. One path is to buy less, much less, and that means reverting to old skills. Mending has been called a quiet and possibly futile protest against modern excess. But it lies within our power and it also has the capacity to open new doors for us. I like to think about textiles as small storytelling objects. You can really unpick a story from the layers. Those layers might be just layers of wear, but when you get a garment or a textile object that's, you know, um, been patched, reinforced, repaired. I'm thinking about, you know, the craft of use, the time and the life that's held in those objects. And I suppose that gives them great resonance, really, for communication um, and for comfort. They can hold a lot. That's Claire Wellesley-Smith, who has a new book just out called Resilient Cloth. For 17 years, she's been a community worker in ethnically mixed and often poor communities in the city of Bradford, which is in the north of England. That work involves working with um, community mental health organisations, um, sometimes hospital settings and community groups um, around the city. And I suppose um, over that period, I kind of started picking up that the word resilient was used again and again, in the context of health, often, also in the context of communities um, and their kind of flexibility, their ability to kind of absorb shocks and change. And so I suppose in my kind of movement around the city, you know, with a car boot full of textile materials, kind of working with really diverse groups of people, I started making connections between the idea of the flex and the ability to change um, in the communities that work in and also in the way that you can prolong the life of um, the materials that I like to use. Welcome to the second series of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. I'm Jo Andrews. I'm a hand weaver interested in how cloth speaks to us and the impact it has on our lives. Each of the episodes in this series takes an emotion, 
and unravels how we express that feeling in textiles. This time we're looking at a feeling of resilience, something that all of us have had to find in the last year. I wanted to understand the ways in which different people faced with different materials had made their clothes last a bit longer. And in this episode, we explore British, Japanese and Indian mending traditions. I could have made it simple and left it there, but the further down this path I went, the clearer it became that it's through mending and remaking that the stories of cloth are often heard most clearly. Repair tells us about the resilience, not just of the piece of cloth we're holding, but it also tells us about the endurance of our families and communities. I think we can learn so much from really ordinary objects. The ordinary thing can, can become quite extraordinary through its, its life cycle. And so I suppose I'm always interested in, in, in that. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing with, with groups is asking people to bring things in um, that normally maybe they wouldn't talk about. So a challenge, for example, to find the oldest um, garment in your wardrobe that you still actually wear and, and tell the story of that. And um, you get extraordinarily detailed um, stories about, you know, a dress or a cardigan that takes somebody sometimes through 20, 30, 40 years of their life. I'm looking for the, the story um, in, in the object or the garment, and I find that endlessly fascinating. A friend of Claire's, an antique textile dealer, sent her an old quilt, which had no fewer than 17 layers. Claire unpicked it bit by bit. The layers included pieces of garment and you could tell from, you know, plackets um, and seams, you could see of shirts um, or dresses, pieces of, uh, of darned wool, possibly old blankets, some pieces that were really so used that they were literally shreds. But I suppose every layer, you know, adds to the loft of the quilt, traps more air, so it's an extremely practical thing. And I suppose in a textile history way of kind of Going through these layers, you see also the fashions um, over time. Of um, There were shreds of turkey red dyed cotton, bits of indigo print, tiny prints, what would be known as uh, conversation prints on cotton. I once read um, an interesting article that, that tracked the life of patchwork quilts and the time span found in the materials. and. I think they'd averaged it out at around a 40-year period. And when you think about maybe a family scrap bag, that would make sense to me. You know, things maybe that your mother or grandmother had had, had patches of added into things maybe that you'd made yourself and having this collection of, of, of stories that can be made by these textiles. Claire calls this quilt archaeology. And there's an idea here which I have always found interesting that repair and remaking by hand imbues an article with love and acts in our minds as a powerful force for protection. There's a way in which the presence of the mender sits within the cloth, even if they are no longer with us. Claire points out that in the UK certainly, and in many other societies as well, there's a strong generational divide around mending. 
in a community-based project that actually explored the heritage of textile reuse and repair here um, in Bradford, there were lots of conversations about, about mending and repair as, as being essential, that visibly repaired things were something to avoid. So invisible mending would be the thing that you would prefer to, um, to show on a garment. I went along to a session one day wearing a, a heavily patched cardigan and I've kind of patched it in multiple different fabrics around the elbows and pockets and it became a bit of a talking point in the session um, and the question that I was asked was why would I draw attention to the holes um, in that way. The preference really is to mend as invisibly as possible in a lot of groups and I suppose, I, you know, I think as a practitioner, um, I think maybe we need to address the privilege that accompanies some mending practices today. Because in some communities, showing that you've um, mended something rather than bought new is a sign that you can't actually afford to buy something new. And that's very problematic. I've had this conversation with my, my, my own mum about this. She's, she's a particularly good at... Um, prolonging the life of her clothes. She made her clothes when she was younger. She, she's got some great textile skills. And yeah, invisible mending would definitely be her preference. She says you have to have the confidence to show off a patch or a darn. But she believes that's gradually altering. What's changing around repair and reinforcing is that there are more conversations around now around consumption and excess. And I think that they're there is increased understanding about the global textile industry and production. I suppose as a practitioner working mainly with communities, I'd say that communication around these issues at community level is something that, that can be very successful. Um, but you have to have the kind of projects really for, to get those conversations going. One of the things about working in an area that's got a huge heritage of textile production is that it's good to be able to reference um, a local industry you can look at how production of textiles and clothing has changed and um, it's moved out of our site, you know, to the other side of the world. And the sorts of conversations you have then around where we live today and how other people work in other parts of the world. Um, those sorts of things are really valuable in how we think about, you know, um, a cheap T-shirt, for example, or indeed buying second hand. And there are few places in the world like Bradford for textile history. In the 19th and 20th centuries, it was known as Woolopolis, the world centre of wool production, bringing in fleece from all over the UK, as well as Australia, New Zealand and South America, and turning out yards and yards of woven woolen fabric for suiting coats, furnishings, and everything in between. Interestingly, alongside the production of new cloth in West Yorkshire, sat the process of recycling and remaking old woolen cloth into something new. At the heart of this was the production of shoddy, originally a term for cloth that had a proportion of recycled fibres in it. There have been lots of projects that have explored weaving heritage and 
the wool processing heritage, less about the kind of other end of the industry. And we really at that stage talking about end use. It's quite, it's a very dirty business. It's the least glamorous aspect, I suppose, of, of a big industry. The research that I did with community researchers and the local historian, um, Jenny Kiff, into the heritage of the local recycling, textile recycling industry, um, included my reading a book by Samuel Jubb called The History of the Shoddy Trade, Its Rise, Progress and Present Position. This was um, written in 1860, at the sort of height of shoddy production. Um, and so he describes a system where nothing is wasted, where even the dust that's generated by the processes is sold on as fertiliser, as it's, um, it's nitrogen rich and it's sent down to the hop fields of Kent. Um, anyway, he describes Dewsbury in his book, and I've got the quote here, as um, the famous rag capital, the Tata metropolis, whither every beggar in Europe sends his cast-off clothes to be made into sham broadcloth for cheap gentility, of moth-eaten coats, frowsy jackets, reeky linen, effusive cotton, and old worsted stockings. This is the last destination, reduced to a filament of greasy pulp by mighty tooth cylinders, much vexed fabrics, re-enter life in the most brilliant forms. And so I was really te uh, taken with this, this idea of the much vexed fabrics. And um, my own much vexed cloths are, um, are broken down textiles that I've worked on, then returned to sometimes after long periods. Um, I leave fabric outside sometimes and the materials begin to break down, sometimes in um, areas that I've printed due to the kind of um, processes used on the cloth and so the cloth perishes and um, it is vexed I suppose but it's a very hands-on process a much gentler form of vexing but again one that uses things up and reinvents them. Japan's contribution to mending sashiko is also a startling reinvention of cloth. It's a very different process from making shoddy and this stems from the very different materials that Japanese people have had to hand. They grew and dressed themselves in cotton, linen and other bast fibres. These are garments that demand patching and reinforcing, not the darning of the wool-rich communities in Europe. Hikaru Noguchi lives in Tokyo. She was taught to darn by a friend in London and has written a book about it called Repair, Make and Mend, which introduced Japan to the freer stitchwork of darning. She's now writing a book about sashiko, which can be tracked back to the 700s and was originally carried out by Buddhist monks. And uh, uh, there was the belief that the uh, spiritual uh, calmness uh, always effect on the quality of stage. So uh, if you are the good uh, Buddhist practitioner, uh, the old stitches must be really beautiful. Hikaru says that unlike Western mending, Japanese sashiko has always had two aims. One to repair, but the second to please the eye and be decorative. Okay, so the decorative purpose of sashiko and mending purpose of sashiko 
is maybe different. And the decorative purpose of sashiko, of course, is it's a, a decoration. So the uh, more interesting patterns or interesting design as possible. But for the uh, mending purpose of sashiko, uh, people try to be discreet as possible. And uh, that uh, mentality is the same as the Western, or I'm sure it's all over the world. So uh, people try to hide their condition of uh, the garment. So we have the same sense of shame about having mended clothes in Japan as we see in Europe. Hikaru says it's a very long time since people in Japan have needed to repair their clothes. It's died out completely. And so uh, even I think my parents' generation, they're uh, 80s. My mother come from uh, the uh, countryside and she never uh, worn the patched uh, or darned uh, garment in her life. All right, the, during Second World War, the Japan has been su- suffered for very poor uh, period, but then that's only maybe 10 years or less. A piece of clothing that has been heavily stitched or patched is known in Japan as boro, which really just means worn out or broken fabric. It came as a complete surprise to the Japanese that Western textile collectors not only loved these garments, which came from very poor farming areas, but were prepared to pay a good deal for them too. People think, what? The Western textile lovers really interested in these borrows? Some people think it's a bit embarrassed to uh, show poor Japanese histories and many people uh, didn't know that kind of things has been exist. They haven't seen anything like that or they haven't heard about it. And, and so it's really uh, interesting. But I understand. I, I love Boro as well because I can see people's creativity. They had to mend uh, their uh, garment uh, because they are so poor and they had to patch more uh, fabrics because uh, of their poor and they can't afford the warmer garment. And But still, I can see they try to make it more prettier. I can feel human uh, creative uh, energy from uh, those uh, rotten layered pieces and from stitching uh maybe the love in the family or i can feel those stories in the behind and those stories uh, really move to a lot of audience it's taken time for japan to understand that both boro and sashiko have made important contributions to their culture japanese needlework lovers has done so French style embroidery or American style patchwork or uh, the British style uh, fisherman iron sweaters knitting or the fair isle sweaters pattern or 
uh, Belgian lace, Japanese ladies, especially ladies, uh, loved those Western styles for years. But I think the last 10 years, Japanese people start to understand the beauty of own uh, traditional uh, cultures and start to realize those sashiko uh, techniques is unique Japanese, one of unique uh, uh, and simple uh, needlework techniques, and they just uh, start to practice. And over the past five to ten years, sashiko has undergone not just a revival in Japan, but it has taken the world by storm. Hikaro thinks that's because very effective designs can be created with a simple running stitch. And she's unmoved that something so quintessentially Japanese has become a global practice, rejecting any suggestion of cultural appropriation. And we don't think about it being stolen. It's very difficult for maybe a lot of Japanese people uh, can't understand that because maybe we understand the Japanese, so-called Japanese culture has been uh, influenced uh, from many, many different cultures, but uh, still, you know, we always uh, enjoy taking some element of other cultures and after the war, a lot of American cultures uh, came and, uh, you know, we understand the cultures are, are always mixed with or influenced from other cultures. The great sculptor Louise Bourgeois came from a family of repairers. Her parents were tapestry restorers in Paris. She said of her own work that assembling a sculpture is a nurturing mechanism. It's not an attack on things. It's a coming to terms with things. There is restoration and reparation. You repair the thing until you remake it completely. And I can think of no better way to describe India's great contribution to the reuse of old cloth. My earliest memory of uh, quilted cloth are from those that my grandmother made. And that tradition of reusing old cloth to make something new exists in nearly all parts of India. It might be referred to by different names. So in Bengal, it's called Katha, uh, but in the north where I grew up, this was called Gudri, which were very lightweight quilts that were made um, using stitch and kind of stitching multiple layers of cloth, which my grandmother loved particularly, not just because of its lovely feel, uh, as you slept in the summer nights, but also because it held a lot of memories. You know, looking at the pieces, you could always recount stories. Hector Cole grew up in northern India, the daughter of two scientists. Both her parents were academics focusing on insects. 
But her mother and grandmother were also passionate about textiles, which had a profound impact on Ekta. She trained at the National Institute of Design in Gujarat before coming to Scotland as a postgraduate. In her intricate work, she makes incredibly beautiful stitched pictograms and maps, which to my eye seem to connect directly to camphor. I don't necessarily look at it as simply taking the tradition of camphor forward. However, um, to me, it's it's the idea I'm pursuing that is important, which is that of you know stories of place and and map making and finding meaning and commemorating memories, but a, a strong connection to my heritage through Kantha feels significant. Um, and I have loved running stitch, you know, ever since I can remember and. You, it's called by different names in uh, various cultures, but I love the simplicity of it and the fact that, you know, it seems to travel between these two, two or three different layers and bringing multiple layers uh, together as quilting or on a single layer, it can be a line as a texture, it could represent you know, uh, landmarks or um, water bodies or lake are the way that I like to use it. Um, and to me, the fact that it it is um, something that kind of takes me back to my culture, my heritage, it's rooted in Kantha is another beautiful layer of the whole. It's not the primary driver. It's I think, a meaningful, significant part of it. Cancer involves taking old cloth, anything from frayed silk saris to worn-out cottons, and stitching them together in swirling coloured designs to make something new. Unlike darning or sashiko, there's no sense of embarrassment about cancer in India. Cancer, in that sense, is very distinct from the other two traditions that you've mentioned, that of darning and of shashiko or boro as we know it. And both of which use the stitch as a tool to, for repair. And, and also boro particularly uses um, discarded pieces of textiles and quilting them into a larger whole. As you rightly said, the association of those two are rooted in shame but it's completely different to what kantha represents kantha in in india is very much about a celebration the fact that you're using old cloth is something that can be understood in the larger cultural context what i mean by that is the idea of repurposing the idea of a very deep respect to materials is is so rooted in in is so kind of it's the dna of the indian way of life that you would never consider throwing anything away because it's considered you know a big waste of resources so if you if we look at food so i i remember my mother using leftovers kind of transforming them in in 
completely different dish the following day. It's the same sort of attitude to fabric. It's the same sort of attitude, which is about repairing or mending old, uh, not, not even old, whatever needs uh, repairing, your first instinct is to restore it, um, to repair it, to mend it. And also, um, Kantha in particular was made as gifts of love. So whenever there was a, a big occasion in the family or, or like an important rite of passage, whether it be a birth of a new child or a marriage in the family or the arrival of honored guests, and a, a kantha was given as a present. It was something that a mother would start at the, the birth of a new baby um, or a grandmother would gift the baby to be wrapped in. Um, so it's very much associated with um, with gifts, with celebration, and uh, it's, I think, the complete antithesis of shame. There is also a much more overt sense in the Cantha tradition of these pieces of cloth telling family stories and expressing future hopes. The importance was that it was made of uh, textiles that once had a previous life. They, they were things that um, were used within the family or belonged to a much loved and cherished member of the family and was being passed down the generation. So the their sense of it being an heirloom that you would look after and one day pass on is very much associated with it. Also, it's seen as an inventive, expressive art, you know, where you're expressing stories from everyday life, you're embroidering uh, your hopes and dreams for the child, for the new child or for your daughter. And in that sense, passing it on as a blessing. In Indian philosophy, you would talk about rebirth um, and multiple lives. And it's, it's also connected with that idea that, you know, this cloth lived a certain life and then it's being kind of rebirthed into something new. And then it will go on to kind of live a whole other life, but with kind of flavor of its previous existence. And these are stories that have not been heard so clearly. The stories of women, often women who could not read or write, and yet they could outline their story and demonstrate their artistic ability in stitch. To me, they are such strong examples of individuality, of expression, and a very feminine universe. I mean, I get so excited that they were all done by women. And it's kind of how... Uh, women viewed their world, how they interpreted it, how they expressed themselves through it. Um, it is just so fascinating. Kantha, like Sashiko, has travelled all over the world. I can walk down the high street of my small town in Dorset and see Kantha cushions in the windows of one of the gift shops. It made me wonder how Ekta thought about these very personal textiles effectively being sold to people who have little understanding of what they might mean. 
Podekta says the history of textile exchange between India and Europe goes back for over a thousand years. And this is just one more example. So now that, you know, you are seeing cancer cushions, for instance, um, in England, I think it's something worth celebrating. It means that some of the connections that were lost um, are being restored again. And it may be that, um, you know, they, they might seem to be made by hands that are not necessarily expressing their personal experiences. But we can look at them in the context of employment generation of a woman or a man sitting um, and working on something that is meaningful, that is going to go um, to another country and hopefully bring joy and color to somebody's home. So I, I feel that it is, um, the response of the Indian artisans to the to the present times, and it 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 still means that hand embroidery continues, and it's not kind of died out. The way our lives are now, I think, the digitization of things isn't that lovely to actually have something in our homes that was done by somebody's hand rather than, you know, being produced by multiple machines. So I, I see that as something worth celebrating. Textile mending and remaking is a complex thing, much more complex than we think at first sight. We might believe that we're just prolonging the life of a piece of clothing, but we're also enjoying the nurturing activity of stitching. And we're telling new stories with old fabric or keeping alive family histories. Here's Claire talking about one of her favourite textiles. It's a, a piece of Hungarian embroidery. It now lives in my house. And it actually, um, I was looking at it the other day and it really, um, it really needs repairing again. But it's a piece of white linen um, with red cotton traditional embroidery, folk art motifs um, and I think it was probably originally made as a, a cloth to put on a side table. It came from my great-grandparents apartment in Budapest where they lived until um, they fled during the Second World War and it ended up in Australia with my grandfather and I have a photograph of myself as a toddler visiting them in Sydney and it's over the back of a very 1970s um, sofa and then it moved onto my mum's dressing table and it was there through my childhood and you can really see the kind of um, the the front side of the embroidery got quite faded at that point so the red's a lot less bright on one side and then she gave it to me so for me I suppose it speaks of my family it tells a story of their movement during the 20th century and um, it's a story of survival many of my grandfather's family didn't survive the war and it's heavily darned around the edges, so it, it kind of tells a story that people have been bothered about it. They've 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 uh, they've wanted it to kind of um, to have continued use over time. Um, so uh, yes, that would be my uh, probably my favourite. Part of what Claire calls the tenacity of material and the messiness of life. Thanks to her, Hector and Hikaru for sharing their thoughts. I hope it helps cast some light on why we enjoy this. 
and how we might use some of the materials we have at the back of wardrobes or the bottom of mending bags. If you'd like to look at pictures of their work or see links to some of the books that I found useful, then please go to the page for this episode at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen, where you will find a full script of this podcast and a form that enables you to get these podcasts in your inbox, which gives you a chance to win the textile-related gifts I give away with each episode. If you feel able to rate or post a review of Haptic and Hughes podcasts, it's always a help and it will enable others to find these episodes more easily. Next time, we'll be going back to wool and sheep and tracing the fate of a fleece from the back of a sheep and tracking its journey to arriving on the back of a man or a woman in the shape of a smartly tailored jacket. Thanks for listening. I'll leave you this time with a poem from Hazel Hall, an American poet from Oregon who died in the early part of the 20th century. Here are old things, fraying edges, raveling threads. Here are scraps of new goods, needles and thread. An expectant thimble, a pair of silver-toothed scissors. Thimble on a finger, new thread through an eye. Needle do not linger, hurry as you ply. If ever you would be through, hurry, scurry, fly. Here are patches, felled edges, darned threads, strengthening old utility, pending the coming of the new. Yes, I have been mending, but also I have been enacting a little travesty on life.